Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Tell you what, it's good to see you um, here today. <laughs> um, we're going to continue our series in the Lord's Prayer, and today we're going to be looking at the first part of Matthew 6 and verse 10. And uh, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray here, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I suppose that every preacher has their hobby horses that they get on. And probably if I were to ask you to list some of the hobby horses of past preachers, you could name that. And I'm sure you could name some of the hobby horses that I have. You know, there's just some certain subjects that we're just passionate about. And when we get an opportunity, um, we talk about those things. But let me ask you this. What is the main subject that Jesus could not stop talking about? Now, having grown up in the church, you know, the initial temptation is to give answers like, well, the cross of Christ or the love of God or the hope of spending eternity with Jesus one day. But, you know, none of these things really dominated the teaching of Jesus. None of them did. The central theme here, the central idea the subject that just permeated um, everything that he taught was the kingdom of God. When you look through the scriptures, you'll see that. So when he teaches his disciples to pray, he teaches them to ask for God's kingdom to come. Now, Jesus' entire ministry, it began with the announcement that the kingdom of God has arrived. And if you think about it, this is really the central theme in um, the understanding of the Christian life. This is one thing that we want to happen, thy kingdom come. We, we understand that. That's the theme of our Christian life. And in fact, the gospel writers, they use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teaching. In the fourth chapter of Matthew, for example, in verse 23, reminds us Jesus went throughout, throughout all of Galilee teaching in the synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now, notice the central theme here um, um, of Jesus, central theme. It wasn't to accept me as your personal savior, you know, to be baptized into Christ, become a, a member of my family. Um, that was not the central theme there. Um, however, that is true the good news that Jesus began to announce to everyone, everywhere, was that the kingdom of God has arrived. Now, you'll see part of this in the, the chosen that we're seeing where Jesus is, is telling them um, about the kingdom, the coming kingdom there, and it's kind of exciting. So, when we seek to understand the Lord's Prayer, when we look at this, we need to ask two vital questions. And one of those questions is, what is the kingdom of God? And the other question is, what are we praying for when we pray for God's kingdom to come? Um, I see some of you looking at your outline and you say, man, this is a long sermon. Well, actually, it is a long sermon, but I've cut it in half. I'm only going to do half of it today. Because I got to look and I said, you know, this sermon is probably 45 or 50 minutes long. And I'm not going to do that because I'm afraid that you'll get done listening before I get done preaching. So, <laughs> so we're going to cut it in half. So don't panic. Um, if, you, 
um, take notes on, on, the, on the sermon topic. If you would like to continue your notes, bring back your outline for next week and you can continue on. And we'll have another one there for, in case you forgot, but I know some people like to keep everything on together. Well, first of all, let's just jump right into it. What is the kingdom of God? Well, I think it would really be helpful for us to start with just a simple definition. And that definition is this. The kingdom of God is simply anywhere that God reigns. The kingdom of God is anywhere that God reigns. Jeremy Treat's book, um, Seek First, he has a real simple uh, definition of the kingdom of God. Here's what he says. The kingdom of God is God's reign through God's people over God's place. Now, I like that, and I like that for several reasons. And one reason I think it really clarifies um, some of the misconceptions about God's kingdom. So let's start off with the first part of that. The kingdom of God is God's reign. The kingdom of God is God's reign. Now, unfortunately, there are a lot of Christians use kingdom to refer to the ways that we make the world a better place by using phrases like kingdom work, you know, or they use kingdom to refer to Christians in the world using phrases like kingdom-minded and such. And as a result of, of um, just a, a half-hearted effort to describe the kingdom there, much of the contemporary talk um, about the kingdom of God, it sort of paints a picture of the kingdom with a vacant throne. And we don't want that, and we don't really understand it that way. Um, and they do that to the extent that we use the kingdom of God to depict some um, utopian world with no mention of God. And when we do that, we really lose the biblical idea of what the kingdom is. So we want to talk about the kingdom, and I wanted to back up this morning and, and um, talk about it even from the beginning of time. But in the Bible, however, the kingdom of God refers very simply to God and his reign as king, not about us and what we do for him. So we need to get that straight. When Jesus shows up saying the kingdom is here, at least, at the very least, what he's saying is God's king has arrived. That's what he's saying. So let's, let's clear some things up here. Now, in one sense, um, you could say that all of creation is God's kingdom. We could say that. The Old Testament, it kind of describes the, the sphere of God's reign um, of being all of creation. Like in Psalms, the 93rd chapter, in verse 1, it says, The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Your throne is established from of old. And then the 103rd Psalm, in um, verse 19, it says, The Lord has established through his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Well, so it's true that all of creation, everything created is God's domain. That is true. So there's a sense in which everything is God's kingdom. So we, under, we understand that. That's kind of a given. But as you continue to read the scriptures and you continue to search the Bible here, you also realize that God's kingdom is God's reign through God's people. You know, that's why in the Garden of Eden, 
Before sin ever entered the world, God commissioned Adam and Eve to be like vice rulers, you know, or to have dominion over everything that he had created, you know, it'd be his royal representatives, you know, of a king and be stewards of his creation and, and to spread the blessings of his reign throughout the earth. But instead, we know the story, Adam and Eve, they chose to usurp the kingdom of God and to seek the, their own path of, to power and, and glory. Well, as you can imagine, this fractured humanity's relationship with its king. It couldn't go on that way. And since that moment, when sin entered the world, an alternative kingdom was created, and humanity has attempted to set up a throne for themselves. Well, this era in history, you know, you could call the fallen world, or some call it the rebellion against God. Oftentimes, we call it the fall. We just use that term, the fall, the fall of man. You know, well, God's solution to this sin was to call out a people for himself who still lived under his reign. Now, we're kind of traveling a whirlwind uh, version, a whirlwind path kind of through the Old Testament, looking at all the ways that, that the kingdom is being used. Well, he called Abraham to go out and become a great nation. And God made a covenant with Abraham that as long as he would let God be God, Abraham's offspring would be um, his holy people. You know, out of Abraham came the people of Israel, and God lived amongst his people by giving them the law by which they could respect God's holiness. Well, then after Abraham, there come another man, Moses. You know, he led God's people through the, the, um, the wilderness, and he also communicated his teaching to them in the wilderness. You know, he even gave them instructions on how to build a tabernacle, you know, with uh, a design that a lot of people say was much like the Garden of Eden. Some scholars say that. But he did this in order that a holy God might dwell in the midst of his people through the tabernacle there. You know, and the people, as people will, they continued to just wrestle with, with God's reign in their lives. They didn't like that. And eventually, they just rejected it entirely, you know, and by demanding that God place a human king over them so that they would be just like all the other nations. They wanted to be like everyone else. Well, folks, that's what sin is right there. The rejection of God as king over one's life. That exactly is what sin is. Well, since then, God's kingdom has been a, a rescue project. You know, and when we use language like saved or we use language like salvation, what we really mean is that that person has chosen to step off of his own throne uh, of their own life and receive God's comprehensive rule um, over every aspect of life. You know, Colossians says it very well in the first chapter in verses 13 and 14. It says those of us, you know, that's been... Um, that's received Jesus as king, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, the third part of that definition we talked about, it says that God's kingdom is God's reign 
through God's people over God's place. Now, where is God's place? You know, we've already seen how God's place was all creation. We've seen that. And more specifically, creation untouched by sin. That was in the Garden of Eden there. But what about after the fall? What about after the fall? You know, where can a holy God dwell? Well, then through the covenant of Moses, it was the tabernacle, you remember. And then it was the temple at Jerusalem, you know, the promised land, you know, the territory that God had promised Moses, you know, the land of Canaan there. But because of Israel's rebellion against their God um, as king, God allowed other nations to destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple. So, at this point, the people in, in the Old Testament history, they're wondering, where is God's place now? Since it's all been destroyed, where is his place? You know, has God permanently left Israel, you know, and left, you know, this world? Well, it's at this moment that God placed prophets on the scene, and uh, he also spoke of then a future kingdom. You know, that would be established at the end of history, kind of a special kingdom. Well, this kingdom, it would be different from the rest of all creation, something totally different. I know Isaiah, prophet, he has a lot to say about this. And Isaiah, the, the 11th chapter, verses 1 through 11, he predicted that out of the people of God, a descendant of King David would arise, or from the stump of Jesse would arise, and uh, uniquely filled with God's Spirit, as it says in verse 2 and 3. His rule would not only bring about justice um, for the poor and oppressed, as it talks about in verse 4 and 5, but also united amongst the nations, as it tells us in verse 10 and 11. And then this vision goes on to speak of of things that almost too wonderful for words. And I want you to read that. We're going to read that right out of the scripture, starting with verse 6. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like an ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all of my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, in this future kingdom, apparently nature itself would be redeemed in addition to the violence and bloodshed and even death itself. Later on in Isaiah, over in the 25th chapter, verse 8, it tells us, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. You know, this is like Eden being, uh, Eden being restored here. Then Daniel prophesies, you know, concerning this kingdom. In Daniel, the second chapter, verse 44, In those days of those kings, or in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, 
and it will and it shall stand forever. Now, the New Testament it tells how Jesus, the Messiah, the promised King, um, who would come and uh, you know to inaugurate or to um, introduce or to usher in the everlasting kingdom of God. In Mark, the first chapter, verses 14 and 15, it says that at the beginning of his ministry, now this is after John had been put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. It says that the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. You know, to say the kingdom of God is come is the same as saying God the King has arrived. You know, Jesus knew his mission uh, was to be Israel's promised Messiah or the King of Kings. He knew that that was his mission and that that mission would take him to a cross to establish a kingdom unlike any kingdom the world has ever seen. So this is going to be totally different. Now, the kingdom of God was the main theme of his teaching, and we can, we can see that um, when you read the scripture, especially when you're reading in the gospels there. But his kingdom was coming in a new way that no one expected. So it kind of took people off guard. This is something that they hadn't seen before, and it was frankly something they couldn't comprehend very well. It wasn't the the political kingdom ushered in through military force or military victory like the Jews expected. Rather, it was something completely different. In Luke, the 17th chapter, in verses 20 and 21, the Pharisees, they asked Jesus point blank, you know, when the, uh, the kingdom of God will come, and here's how he answered them. Look at verse 20. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, that's pretty exciting news there. So for Jesus, the place where God reigns is here and now. It's the present kingdom. Question, are we living in the kingdom? Absolutely. Is the church the kingdom? Absolutely here. You know, his reign is something in our midst that is good news for all the poor, all the oppressed. It says in Luke, the fourth chapter, verses 18 and 19, it's something that brings healing to people's physical bodies as well as their, their spiritual needs. You know, and it's not for the, the uh, proud, but it's for the poor in spirit. It's not for the strong and powerful. It's not the strong and powerful that will inherit um, this kingdom, but it's the meek and the pure in heart and those who are persecuted. And at the same time, it's a future kingdom. Luke 19, verse 1 or verse 11, it says this. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. His parable was to uh, his parable was really about a master who went to a distant country to obtain a kingdom and then return. You know, and in Luke eight, or John the 18th chapter, verse 36, Jesus simply states, "My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world." Now, as we know, Jesus, many times, he employed 
the use of parables to teach people about the coming kingdom. And in many of these stories, he begins with the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. And oftentimes, there's stories of the master who went away on a journey that's going to come back one day. Um, you know, one day, Jesus will return to bring his final kingdom, a promised future where God's permanent dwelling place will be among his people. Revelation 21 and verse 3 tells us that. And where every tear will be wiped away. No longer will experience death. We won't experience death. We won't experience sorrow or pain because our sinful nature will be stripped away and we will finally, fully be in the presence of God. Now, what's the difference between the kingdom that we're, we're in right now, the church? You see, in order for a kingdom to exist, there has to be a king and there has to be subjects. Who's the king? Jesus. Who's the subjects? We are. That's right. So in order for the kingdom to exist, there has to be a king and subjects. One day, when we get to heaven, it'll be, the difference will be there will still be a king and still be subjects, but we will be able to look at the king face to face. That will be the difference between this kingdom and the future kingdom there. Now, if I don't stop right there, I'll be forced to go on with the rest of the message because it all goes together. So I'm going to stop right there. So let's pray. Father God, we're grateful that you're our king. We just give you thanks for that. But Father, we also know that there's responsibilities that goes with us as being the subjects. And Father, we just pray that we would live up to those responsibilities in a way that's pleasing to you. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.